So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Microwaves, semicolon. Semicolon. Uh, oh, so we're gonna do designing, designing dystopia, electric sheep edition. Electric sheep edition. Yeah, we're gonna talk about. Uh, uh, who wrote that? Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick. All I could think of was Asimov, and Asimov, I was like, that is yeah. not right. No, no. Um, yeah, Asimov was much more. Uh, I read a lot of his work. He was a. Um, I always felt he was more utopian centric. His he described problems, but then his he had a very like um uh positive kind of view on how these things might resolve and and his books were um I mean at least in the foundation series. Anyway, that's a whole yeah. other thing. We can get to that. So, <laughs> um so Philip K Dick writes uh a prolific science fiction writer and if you've read a lot of his work um you would be familiar that uh, you'd probably be familiar with his style. Um, his his work always kind of sits in my mind in a very unique way. Like he has a very like, um, like his all of his worlds blend together in my mind in some ways. Um, even though they're not necessarily always the same. Uh, you know the same context but um in particular so since we're talking about designing dystopia and if you're just starting to pick this one up um we're doing kind of a series of uh how one might design dystopia and we're kind of trying to talk about um the important facts that you would are the important for sort of factors you need in order to have a successful right. or a superlative example of dystopia um so right now we're kind of just going to talk a little bit about um Philip K. Dick, but more in particular, do androids dream of electric sheep, or as more people are probably familiar with, Blade Runner the movie. Um, mm, is, yeah. So Blade Runner the movie uh, is sort of loosely sort of follows the the book, like it shares some characters and some sort of similarities. Um, they're not that close. Um, this isn't one of those situations where it's like, well, oh, the book was better than the movie. Like they're just two very different works um, from my point of view. Um, uh-huh. I personally love the movie. I love the like the grit of it and the sort of noir sort of science fiction blend that um, tickles me and and many vis- visually I find it very stimulating. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the book is um, the, so the important thing about the book and the movie to some extent as well is the, what we're really kind of talking about here is the setting, um, this sort of dystopian setting and, um, the book originally when it was originally written, um, takes place in 1992. Um, they later changed it to match the movie to 2021, I think, um, in later printings, but, uh, it basically the, the setting is sort of the following on of a devastating global war that was, it was in the book, it's referred to as like world war terminus. Um, Mm. and the, the, the earth's atmosphere becomes so radioactively polluted that, um, 
the United Nations starts to encourage mass migrations or emigrations to off-world colonies. And so mm. um, in order to preserve humanity's sort of genetic integrity, the idea of basically being like, hey, we need to get enough people off this planet that yeah. um, you know, we can survive as a species. So um, the whole thing with the, like if you're familiar with the movie, the whole replicants, which are these sort of android, like artificial humans, um, they're the like in the book in the setting the whole thing is that that people are encouraged to leave um leave earth and they're incentivized by being given free personal android robot servants um and these robots are made on mars but um at some point they violently rebel and try to escape to earth where they can like try to get remain undetected and that's where the whole plot of the sort of um the the bounty hunter sort of uh what do they call them the in the movie um decker is a uh, deckard is the uh Rep- he's replicants? the like yeah so the replicants are the androids and then um they have these like bounty hunters basically they're called mm. um like he plays the like detective guy um anyway if i it doesn't matter uh anyway he's yeah. they're like they're basically like cops that go and retire in quotes right they basically kill the androids um so but the setting is the important thing so there's this sort of in the book there this isn't really played to in the movie but in the book it's really great and this is where this sort of like dystopia really comes into play in the book is that um on earth owning real animals has become this sort of fashion status fashionable status symbol because of the mass extinctions and the idea of like them being very rare and so people who are poor often end up purchasing realistic lifelike robotic animals um which is touched on a little bit in the movie um in the original movie he goes uh deckard goes and traces down the snake which was a um or the scale of a snake and so um he goes and talks to the animal dealer who has these like high quality replicated animals these artificial animals but why would you want an an artificial animal because it's because owning um a real animal is such a status symbol that if you can't afford it you fake it right Oh, so it's just the state of being in which you own an animal is what you're aspiring to. Yes. And if you can't afford a real animal, you can get a fake one. Exactly. To, yeah. Like, it's like a knockoff purse. It's like a knockoff purse. Exactly. It's the same reason okay. like people stick like weird decals on their older iPhones to make them look like newer ones. It's like... <laughs> is just, that really a thing? Yeah. I Apparently, it's a whole <laughs> thing. Like, you know, you want to like... Because a lot of times it's like, well, I got the cheaper model, but if I put this sticker on it, it looks like... I bought the more expensive model um, to the level where it's like you have like a whole camera, like a fake camera lens that goes on there to oh, make it look like it has the man. extra lens and all of this stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, but that's that's a known <laughs> thing. I mean, that's a thing people do. And, um, you know, their motivation is maybe foreign to me, but I'm sure they understand it. And uh, but anyway, I mean, it's 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 a thing we know that people do in society. I mean, keeping up with the Joneses is always like, you know, it's a big part of capitalism, right? Like, that's the thing that drives it. It's yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You have to like stoke the flames of competition, I guess. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's all the marketing propaganda is everything about that, right? It's all about creating status by ownership of property, um, of goods that actually cost 15 cents as opposed to the $850 you paid for them. Right. Um, so, uh, 
anyway, so there's so in this dystopian society, after the sort of nuclear fallout and the mass extinctions of uh, animal species and people kind of leaving Earth to go live on these off-world colonies, um, you have this sort of Earth society where this status symbol of owning real animals and um, and they're basically the author stress uh, Philip K. Dick kind of stresses the reason that um, owning authentic animals is of value is because of there's the, because in the society there's this cultural push for greater empathy. And okay. so owning an animal is something that you can be empathetic with. And it, it, it sort of, it's some kind of weird expression of humanity. Um, not, that, not empathy is weird, but, it, but the way that it's expressed in the book is this kind of, yeah. um, and so as we were just saying, if you are poor, you can't own, you can't afford a real animal. So you oftentimes like can buy these like imitation animals. In fact, uh -huh. the main character, Rick Deckard, um, owns an electric sheep, which is where the title, like the title. Do of androids the, dream? Of yeah. Life. And so that's kind of, um, so he owns this, um, electric black faced sheep and that's not the racist version of blackface. It's just, that's a species of sheep that have black skin on their face right ah right yes um they, they kind of yeah you've you, uh they're kind of like captured in pop culture from time to time yeah yeah like a big fluffy um, white cloud with like a little yeah and they're they're kind of scottish um, dark face sticking out yeah yeah um not that you know if there are uh, please by all means correct me if there's some racist connotation there um, right, me too. Don't let yeah, me wander like that's around. Not, yeah, I'm not trying to dismiss <laughs> that. I just, my my understanding is that that's the name of a species of sheep. Um, anyway, so uh, so he has this sheep. And then so the other kind of big factor that kind of factors into the sort of dystopian existence of living on Earth in this time um, is they, uh, this trend of increased empathy has coincided with um, this new technology-based religion, which this this part of the book just cracked me up. Um, it, it it's really like I shouldn't say cracked me up. It's not funny. It's you can imagine this being real. So this technology-based religion called Mercerism, which was um, it uses these things called empathy boxes, which link users simultaneously to a virtual reality of collective suffering. Um, and this, and it's all centered around this martyr-like character, Wilbur Mercer, who eternally climbs up a hill while being hit with crashing stones. Um, and so it's like, it's sort of the, um, it, it's kind of like everybody just sort of formed this religion around this virtual suffering. They're like, we're going to yeah. create this environment where this person is constantly trying to, um, you know, climb up the hill. Uh, what's that Greek? Uh, Sisyphus. Yeah, Sisyphus. Yeah. It's like this modern day Sisyphus who is constantly trying to roll the boulder up and we can all connect and be him at the same time. I see. Um, and so that becomes... It's like a, share, a portal into shared suffering from which you develop empathy. Yeah. I Yeah. It's just kind of um, this weird and weird. And so... And so between the collecting high status animal pets and linking into these empathy boxes, those are basically the two main ways that um, characters in the story strive for existential fulfillment. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of the underlying, like, like the setting of this dystopia that, um, that Philip K. Dick is painting. Um, yeah. There's also, I think one of the other things in the future uh, world is they had these things called Penfield mood, mood organs as Philip K. Dick 
titled them, um, but they mm-hmm. were basically these these objects that allowed um, characters to precisely adjust their moods according to a dynamic range of available settings. And so um, <laughs> it's, it's you know, if you've read any Philip K. Dick, um, and which I highly recommend um, at least like a couple, his reads are pretty easy um, or his books are pretty easy to kind of get through. Uh, yeah. It's, that's that's definitely in line with his sort of the way that he thinks about a lot of things is it's like oh you know like how fucked up would it be that like this very natural process that's sort of externally controlled or influenced is is now precisely externally influenced by this box and now your mood is entirely adjustable by this thing called a penfield mood organ um you know it's just it's it's really like it's both gross and like hilarious and hilarious and like mind opening like it just kind of makes you like recontextualize your own existence and it's like well how is that different for me like eating my emotions or any of the other things that i do to try and modulate my own emotions Um, right yeah yeah like how does it not just devolve into a perpetual search for being at a hundred on the emotion box well i you know, he doesn't, um, I I don't remember the details of that. It's kind of, I, I remember that the mood organ things were kind of a little bit in passing. Um, I imagine like most things, um, you know, at least if you've been alive long enough to like realize that you, being a biological organism, you kind of find homeostasis. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, changing from homeostasis is hard in a sustained way. Um, yeah. And so even when you have some external factor that like elevates your mood, you can't forever, um, you know, like there's a reason that we don't sit around masturbating all day long. Like you just can't, like you may, you may have spent days doing it, but, (laughs) um, but at some point you stop and you move on to something else. Like you can't like that it's diminishing returns. And so I imagine that the, that it's the kind of same relationship where you can, yes, you can externally like modify your mood, but ultimately you're not fulfilling some existential crisis, right? Like you're not solving that just because, um, yeah. And I think the more time, like as you get older too, I think you start to realize like there is some separation of mood and who you are overall as like an entity. Um, you know, uh, yeah, like not, I, not, not it, it I, at least for me, my experience is that, um, when I'm, when I'm in a powerful mood of feeling, whether that's anger or pleasure or, you know, sadness or any, you know, any of the, you know, in the giant spectrum of how one can exist and feel, um, uh-huh. I, in those moments, I don't, you know, obviously that's how I feel. Um, and I've talked about this before, like having ADHD means that, um, Whatever mood I'm in, that's the way I've always felt my entire life. Um, and it's never going to change. It's always going to be just like this. Yeah. It's like, this is, I, this is how I've always felt, uh, yeah. because of my, like my, my lack of time perception, the way like a more normal neurotypical brain would be able to perceive it. I, I kind of experience like moods feel more extreme in some ways, like not, yeah. they don't feel more extreme. They just seem my perception of them over time is more difficult. But as I've gotten older, yeah. I am able to look back and be like, okay, Yes, there there are periods of time where I felt one way or another, but that's not my entire existence. Like I'm not mm-hmm. defined by that um, in my mind. I mean, now we're getting into some really, you know, very, very philosophical tangents of what it even means to be alive as a human and what intelligence means and, and yeah. what it means to 
perceive the world and um you know the nature of uh the nature of like autonomy and you know self perception and existence uh yeah. but from the perspective of dystopia which i i think that's actually not a bad area to discuss at some point because i think um a lot of dystopian novels or dystopian fiction seems to use it as a background to discuss philosophical questions and ethical questions and the nature of of existence and what it means to sure you know what what is good and what is bad and why why is it that way um so uh so so people use the mercer box to get empathy why does everybody not have empathy it, it's not that they don't have empathy it's that they there is a social push for greater empathy there's a cultural push for greater empathy after like as a fallout of the the world war terminus as they termed mm-hmm. the, like the final war um or the war that ended in in the nuclear fallout and all of the the mass extinctions um mm-hmm. There is, in the context of the novel, the way he writes it, it's not that people aren't empathetic. It's that there's a cultural push for greater empathy. And so people are um, are looking for ways to be more empathetic and feel more empathy. Um, I see. And so that's where the Mercer box developed, or this, these empathy boxes that, that resulted in the religion, the technology religion called Mercerism. Um, and... And so it's, I can't remember it in the way that Philip K. Dick writes, it's always a little bit difficult to know. Um, I, so Wilbur Mercer, the character who's, you know, plays Sisyphus and is basically eternally climbing up a hill and being hit by crashing stones. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember if he's real or whether he's virtual. Um, I believe that in some ways he's real. I think that, I mean, I think the way Philip K. Dick writes is like, like a lot of his things are left open to interpretation. It's sort of like, um, like it doesn't matter whether he's real or virtual. Like, what does it matter? Yeah, he's experiencing yeah. that as the character, right. and so it is right. a little bit vague. And you know, the first, um, I feel like this is one of the great things about um, the first Blade Runner movie is that there was always that little bit of a question of like, wait, was Deckard the main character? Was he also a replicant? Like that's like it's, it's left open to interpretation. Now I think that's been a little bit resolved that he wasn't, um, by the second movie, they kind of like established that. I think, uh, I have no idea because I fell asleep during them. That's fine. Um, you could still participate in this discussion because this isn't really okay. about, um, this isn't really about the facts <laughs> of the movies. This is more about establishing um, the concept of dystopia and designing a dystopia. So, yeah. um, and I think some salient points about this particular um, one that we're talking about, uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," is that uh, in Philip K. Dick's novel and in his world the setting that he's created this dystopia is um it it's not a dystopia i think up until this point i'd been kind of thinking about dystopia as there's a particular person who is um sort of the dictator and in this situation it's a dystopian setting where there is still a form of government and um 
there are humans who are organized and attempting to increase the exist like the quality of life of people but it's still a dystopia because of the um because of the fallout of the war and um the nature of like technology and um and social yeah. you know in this case like i think in some ways uh like so this is an interesting question i think just in the question of designing a dystopia um I don't necessarily think that dystopia means that um, or how do I put this? It's kind of the same problem of like we were talking about when we were talking about utopia and, and uh, what's his name more. Um, was it Thomas Moore? Moore. Yeah. Thomas Moore. Yeah. When we were talking about his book utopia, where it's like, that would probably be a dystopia for some of us, the environment, this like this, this sort of nation state Island, you know, monastery sort of like existence. Um mm-hmm where that's kind of the same situation here where this dystopian setting that he describes is only dystopian in the sense that um, it doesn't match with our current values that we value things as good. Ah, Like um, so far I have not, you know, for instance, um, although I don't think that I'd want to plug myself into a box where I then shared the collective suffering of, um, of this, Wilbur Mercer basically, you know, struggling to climb this hill. Um, yeah. Like that doesn't sound fun to me, but in the setting, he like in the setting, he establishes it as one of the ways that the characters are fulfilling some existential need. Like, ha- so. Oh, that's just so unsatisfying. Like even from the point of a book that's written to be entertaining and satisfying. Right. Well, I, I think my telling of it, I, I do remember oh. feeling, like <laughs> my telling of it is not doing it justice. Right. Like, um, I, although maybe, I mean, his books often leave me like feeling that way. Um, really? It seems kind of flat. Like how did everybody show up with such a lack of empathy that they now have enough empathy to worry that they don't have enough empathy to start empathizing with a person who's totally unempathizable. Um, I mean, I don't, I, so like if I, I don't have build the empathy tools to argue against that, um, because <laughs> I, a, I'm not the author B it's been a long right. time since I've read the book. Um, I would, I would say that, um, you saying that is probably the reason that after I read, I kind of went through this stint where I read maybe like, I, I don't know how many books he's, I, I must've read like easily like 10 or 15 of his books. Um, oh, okay. Like kind of all in a row because I was just kind of like really getting into him. Um, yeah. And at the end of it, that's how I, what you just said is kind of how I felt. I was like, oh, oh okay. all of his books have this same problem, which is there's a certain aspect of flatness to them. Um, okay. So like they're deep in many ways, but in other ways they feel very shallow. Like you've not yeah. like, I'm like, okay, but you haven't but, actually. Right. Um, you know, if I were to be, I, I like this isn't, this is me being critical of an author that I think very highly of, and he's written many, many important, very good works. Um, but if I were to be critical, I think that if you read enough of them, you can see that in some ways his works, I'm not saying he did this on purpose, but in some ways I think his works sort of hide behind vague, like uh-huh. basically being like hinting at depth without exploring or providing depth um 
so it's but at the same time they're kind of I would argue that I relate in this way that a lot of like the podcasts and things that we do and a lot of the like the body of work that you and I work together works mm-hmm. on the same principle where it's like, hey, we're going to just blast by all these ideas because I want to get it out of our head. It's like out of our heads as fast as possible. For sure. And it's for not sure. it's not necessarily laziness on his part for not having explored it deeper because he's like, well, I've got all these other ideas I need to get out. I gotcha. And so. Okay. It doesn't mean that you're not wrong. You are right, I think. Like uh, many of his books are probably more flat than others in that regard. Um, so that's fine. And, you know, sure. since it's a made up world, we're kind of left to him like, well, what did you mean by this? But I would argue, on the other hand, that's exactly what we're doing, which is we're going to take that and run with it and be like, that's fine. We're going to design our own dystopia. Thank you very much for the ideas. Um, right. So in this case, um, <laughs> We're going to cherry pick things we like and don't like. Yeah. So here's what this made me think in terms of our larger project that we're working on here, which is to design the best possible dystopia. Yes. Um, It occurs to me that you have to degrade the humanity of your subjects, but not to the point where they are like totally inhuman. Uh, there, it seems to me that 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 in order to like create a dystopia and keep it going, there would have to be a very fine balance. Like, for example, in the same way that a virus that's too aggressive will kill its host, you have to loop people into this dystopia. Yeah. But you have to give them just enough of sense of a sense of identity. And individuality that they have any reason at all to keep going. Right. I so And so the reason I say this is because when I was thinking about like the conditions under which I would be in the position to build empathy from the Mercer box, right? Yeah. Or the Mercerism. Yeah, Mercerism, like, the empathy boxes, but Mercerism. Right. Yeah. So when I think about the Mercer box or whatever, the empathy box, when I think about the empathy box, the situation that the box is presenting me with from which I am supposed to derive or create more empathy is itself so unempathetic and so irritating and so silly that it has the opposite effect on me now thinking about it hypothetically than creating empathy. Right. And so you, I, that to me, like... So that to me speaks of the need for a balance, right? Some yeah. kind of a balance. Because I yeah, you, well, I, I mean, utopias I have, and dystopias are highly engineered, right? Like that's the step 1 is like highly engineer them. Yes, yeah, like they're they're highly engineered, they're completely removed from a sort of um what we would describe as like a natural state process. Of nature. Natu- yeah, yeah, natural, natural state. Yeah. Um uh well, okay, I I want to poke. I mean, it. we're fi- we're figuring this out. We've never done yeah. I want to poke so. at your your thoughts on the empathy box or the Mercer box. Um, okay. When I think of that, I imagine that I don't. I, when when I, you know, if I were to use it in this fictional fictional reality, um, that you don't one doesn't experience it from the perspective of like now i'm also climbing the hill and being crashed by stones and this is stupid Uh and why would i choose to do this but from the perspective of now i am wilbur mercer and i think and believe the way he does in order to be in this situation like i 
Okay. I have to because the empathy means that I understand why he continues to choose to do this suffering. Um yeah. And so my takeaway is that the empathy box is that's what it grants. Now, I, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with you entirely in the sense that like um it, you know, it still feels it feels a little forced. Um but I think in the book like like my the way that I understand it in the book and what I if I remember correctly is that Philip the author of Philip K. Dick is he's uh-huh. um he paints this picture of this sort of like the decline of Earth as as you know species are dying off and humans are leaving in droves and um the people who remain are are living in this sort of like abandoned city, so to speak, right? Um they're not necessarily starved for like physical resource. Like they can find shelter and food is abundant enough that they're not necessarily struggling in that way, but they're struggling for, for a sense of social belonging and a sense of like, um, you know, it's a much more of an existential existential crisis. And so I'm not, I don't disagree with you. I don't necessarily think that, um, that the yeah. that the things that Philip K. Dick offers are um are really like realistic in the sense that it's like, oh yeah, we're all gonna form a religion around um <laughs> but but this is where this is where I kind of like I don't he's based this on a reality, which is that a lot of people have formed a religion around the idea that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, right? Well yeah, if uh if you don't sin then he suffered for no reason. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's the that's the that's the takeaway. I'm sure they all want you to take away from that. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah. Go on. But my point being is that he created this, um, like, and maybe like your rejection of that religion is the same reason I reject it, which is the same reason we would reject Mercerism. Probably. I mean, I think that's like maybe what we're circling around here. Yeah, like your your frustration it. with it is the same frustration I have with it, which is like this seems stupid. What is what is this for exactly? <laughs> yeah. So, um I which okay, so to design a good dystopia, yeah, designing a dystopia, um another yep. factor that may be important is religion of some kind. Okay, that's number 10 on our list. Yeah. So, um that seems to be some kind of organized religion or cult-like um approach to thought which which is another kind of form of thought control or thought police um it seems like right although in a dystopia there's no reason that the religious stuff and the thought control stuff has to come from the same source oh yeah absolutely yeah and that's not um right i i think uh i think in designing a a good solid dystopia um religion needs to be so i think I think a religion religion sets up an interesting sort of philosophical trap for people to continue to buy into um their current existence because if you promise something that is beyond this current time like you're basically saying like whatever suffering you have now pales into comparison to the joy and pleasure you will feel later having done that this suffering. Yeah. So um 
you know. Except the second marshmallow is way bigger than the first marshmallow that we're also not going to let you have. You just have to take it on faith that the work you're doing right now is the first marshmallow. So you better enjoy it. Right. Right. Be thankful. Be thankful. Um, I think like a religion specifically for me is a way of getting people. It's a way of producing the policed thought right it's a way of thought policing but rather than being fascist or dictatorial or top down religion has a very insidious quality in that it has it creates in the believer a a self-generated desire to follow whatever the rules are that are set out right right and so whereas like if the government or some you know fascist entity is oppressing you and repressing you and telling you to act and believe a certain way the only way they're going to get you to do that is by threat of violence or by making you believe that you actually want to do these things and i think religion is a much more effective way of making people think that what they want is to follow the rules that have been laid out for them as though it's a choice yeah and so i think it's definitely a powerful tool in our our toolbox of creating a dystopia um so you know, I think the aspects of designing a dystopia, there's one as like one of the discussions needs to just revolve around like what does it look like to to have it exist. Another part of the discussion is how does one actually create that? Like how do you get yeah. there? Like how do you get there from here? How do you get there from other places? Um, how does one establish that as uh yeah. So um so the you know to kind of kind of finish up with the android do android stream of electric sheep um the the setting is what i was kind of trying to get at is that it's a little bit different than what i'd been thinking about before which is that um this dystopia exists not in a strict dictatorship it's sort of um it it exists as almost like this existential crisis for all of humanity, right? They kind of, okay, yeah. you know, it may have been human, like it, it was self-inflicted in the sense that there was a, a nuclear war. Um, but the, uh, the, in theory, like United Nations was a sort of democratic representative government of some kind, um, you, you know, on paper. And, uh, and obviously we don't really know because of the way, you know, it's a fictional story written by Philip K. Dick. So, you know, whatever he didn't say was never said. Um, (laughs) But But what he didn't tell you is. Right. Is it, is that, is that a tautology? Is that what that's called? (laughs) I don't know. A logical tautology is like where you're saying the thing is a thing. Right. Yeah. What I'm I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is that what I said was a tautology in the sense that like whatever he didn't say wasn't said. Right. Like. Right. Yes. That is a tautology. um, Yeah. So. uh, (laughs) But that this kind of um, I, I think it's important to kind of look at the different kinds of imagined dystopias. And so um, I think it's important to kind of think about uh, in this case, we've kind of identified one of the fundamental key features he had of the dystopia was a religion. Um, Another key factor seems to be um, that there is an existential crisis for uh, human existence. Um, In this case, he, he seemed to be focused on the sort of, I, I get that like, 
so I'm I'm cribbing from the or I'm like kind of skimming through the Wikipedia article and I I'm kind of more and more remembering like the the book when I read it and I I got the impression that um maybe the way it's represented in the Wikipedia article about the empathy problem is that yeah a better way of looking at it is that people were struggling to find ways to feel and exercise empathy because of oh okay because of just living in a society where there are fewer and fewer so living beings that around people, you. It's not that people had a diminished capacity for empathy. It's that no. they had empathy and nowhere to put it. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Like they're that's living. Diff- that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's, I, I, when I read the book, I think that was more the experience that he was conveying, or at least that was gotcha. the takeaway I had, which was that um, it was a sort of lonely existence for sure. Um, at least living on earth he never talks about what goes on on the off-world colonies so their their existence and what life is like there is unknown um to the reader as far as i can tell um oh that's interesting yeah so it's it could be that um this dysto this pocket of dystopia really just exists on earth um and nowhere else uh Mm -hmm. it's hard to say um but anyway so i i think that uh as a as a model for a dystopia it's an interesting one to look at um there's also some interesting kind of issues of um so one of the things that happens um is that uh at some point the mercerism is i think suggested to be a hoax um which i'm trying to remember what the value of that was it was um oh i think what it was is that there's oh no no so in the story at some point there's some other faction that's like attacking mercerism and like trying to just like disprove it and prove it to be a hoax and like suggest that um, William Mercer is like not real or Wilbur Mercer. Sorry. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's interesting like the way that he kind of tries to weave this story in and around this like backdrop of this dystopia and like what, like what he assigns as values and like what's important to people. And I do remember, right. Um, this the main kind of overriding like mood that you get from all of the characters in this story is that they are sort of resigned to um i don't like not disaffected like they're they're kind of they're very apathetic there's a lot of apathy um is that because there's just no alternative to the way that they're living and they know that or i mean you don't really don't, know you just like, kind of like so beca- that's the part that is like unsatisfying for me like how did people get so anti and apathetic how did they get so yeah like wh- yeah. why do they have so so much antipathy right um and again like i'm i'm not doing the story justice because that's you know the nature of me me summarizing a story i read 15 years ago and um deciding to talk about it for an hour yes yeah um i mean i I, like i don't want to talk about it entirely the hour what i'm hoping to do is like kind of like at some point we need to talk about um philosophically like how this fits into our idea of designing dystopia Um, right and well i mean i definitely think like 
I definitely think we've hit on something here with the difference between fascism and religion and it achieving similar goals. Yeah, I think that's so. Um, so would you say that fascism, fascism and religion are a similar aspect of uh, a good dystopia? Like they, they're kind of on the same, same, like you yeah, don't need think- both. You could have one or the other, or you could have both. I think you could have both. I think probably a more resilient dystopia or like, so that raises a question, right? Like yeah. what does resilience within a dystopia mean? Um, if if your desire is to perpetuate the dystopia, I think you'd probably do a better job in the long run if you had a diverse set of circumstances yeah, like like for example, I think having both religion and fascism together is probably more effective than one alone. Right, right. If your goal is to create and maintain a dystopia. Right. Yeah. I because I, yeah because if a dystopia is just a, a a state of of total insecurity and danger and fear then anything that creates a destabilizing force is something that we would want to perpetuate. And at some point, the conflict between religion and fascism would be a destabilizing force in and of itself. But if we become too destabilized, we get rid of our dystopia. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that is where having, say, like a duality of, say, religion and fascism sort of opposed. And when, because then when, popularity swing like when society swings hard in one direction or the other mm-hmm. you still end up in a dystopia right yes and so you're thinking the same thing i'm thinking <laughs> even even as you and so actually having that sort of oscillation as it swings back and forth where as um you know the masses become more more in tune with the religion that you've put in place or that exists in this dystopia and less in fascism starts to fall out of fashion then um the fascist elements will solidify and and become more attractive as people realize that there's no satisfaction to be found in the religion and suddenly right. and you kind of i think it's sort of like you're basically putting people in in a yard like you have two yards and a fence between them and the grass is such that when you stand on the other side it always looks greener and so yeah. and at yeah. no time do you pay attention to the fact that they're the only two yards in the entire planet and that you're stuck in them. Do you know what this reminds me of? What? And I, I mean this like I'm not trying to be snarky. I'm yeah. totally serious. This reminds me of the consolidation and ongoing battles of the monopolistic cell phone companies. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. That that was something that always really confused me about like the end goal of capitalism. Like, okay, so you guys realize that there's only just so many people on the face of the planet and if you are successful the way you aim to be, at some point you will have all of those people as customers and then what? Right. Right, exactly. And like Yeah, and then what? I mean, then Verizon can swallow up Sprint and then it's all just the Sprint? I mean, I don't know. Like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't unless you stand to lose some ground at some point you can't regain it 
And if you can't regain it, then you don't have any advantage over your adversary in the competition. And so I guess like it just becomes meaningless. It's kind of like how this also reminds me of like how Bitcoin has been basically mined out of existence and pretty soon it's just going to be worthless because like there's no more of it to be found. Right, right. <laughs> or no more to be mined. Yeah. Um, and so like also mining at this point is pointless because it's so labor and, and resource intensive that it becomes a law the law of diminishing returns like yep. it's just not worth it anymore right but th we're not going to get onto that tangent the point is it seems like if you're going to give people something to fight for and occupy their time with giving a shit about something yeah. but you want to be sure that you win a hundred percent of the time you just set up two adversaries and have them fight against each other so people can trade sides as much as they want but they're not getting anywhere and that is what american politics also feels like to me now that i'm thinking about it and saying it out loud yes exactly that's what i was getting at about having the two having the two opposing parties that are constantly in conflict and so right. you're you're constantly like yeah but they're you're, doing the bad thing over there not us right um, right and right. yeah and so having that is um i, I mean I and when you f when you force it into a dichotomy like that yeah. it's like that what does that do in practice? Well, I used to be of the opinion that team A was right, but now I changed my mind, which by definition means I go with team B now right. because there are no other choices. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of, um, I, so I think in the perp for the purposes of creating a dystopia, I think that having that is important. Um, I actually don't know that it matters if there's two or many. It's just not having it's it's it, it's the important thing is having a system that people are oscillating between in some regard. Taking some stake in and feel like they're making their own choices when in fact they're making exactly the choices that you offered them in the first place exactly. and making that choice doesn't actually result in a difference. Right. Um Yeah. And that that kind of is smacks of apathy, right? I mean, that's kind of feeling very. Apathetic. Well, how can you not become apathetic? No, no, no. I'm I know. I'm just apathetic I, at this like, point. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's my point. Is that in a good dystopia, um, mm -hmm. I think apathy is an important. Um, you want people to be apathetic because then yes. they're they're resigned to their state. Um, I mean, this kind of this is where I like. A lot of this is like, you know, what the fuck do we mean by dystopia? And what, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. where are we going to go with this as far as what constitutes a good dystopia? Um, and I, you know, I have yeah. lots of questions like, um, you know, is is a dystopia, a, like, is the best dystopia the one that maximizes suffering for the maximum number of people? Um, right. Is it one that is stagnant? Um, is it one that, so I was kind of thinking about this and I think, um, the whole concept of since, since we were talking about Blade Runner or, uh, do Android's dream of electric sheep and the concept of like artificial humans. And that mm -hmm. made me think about, um, the, just what it means to be human from a biological standpoint and how we are this collection of single cell, like of cells, right? So we're like a multicellular organism and, uh -huh. Um, the cells in a human body or in any multicellular organization, typically, although some multicellular organisms have um, a more more equitable distribution of of status and resource, um, mm -hmm. when you think about 
the human body and you think about how the cells are organized and their their priorities and status you you quickly realize that brain cells are at the um at the very peak right so brain yeah. cells are like the elite they're the ones they live in a utopia for cells they will never be like their their lack of food means the death of the entire organism and so all other cells mm -hmm. will sacrifice themselves biologically like it's just inherently the nature of it right your body serves your mind and not your mind your brain your brain cells and so yeah. Everything else will continue to sacrifice and do all like work over time, do everything it can in order to make your fat fucking brain cells happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so um, when you think about it like that, it's like and I, you know, and I compare that to say like, well, if we were to be like a society, um, if you organize society in a way that it's like then you do have to have this elite. Well, I don't know that you have to, but a natural occurrence is to have this elite body that is fat as fuck and doesn't is lazy as fuck and just is constantly being served. And yeah. and the rest of us who are suffering and like give our lives in order for you to like, you know, had a having had a good time running down the hill and skinning your knee. Like right. you know, and then all those cells that die. Now obviously I'm ascribing like um, you know, um uh, like uh, what am I? I'm anthropomorphizing like individual cells, which obviously is not like we know that to not be necessarily true. Um, sure. But, but point taken. But my point being is that um, when you kind of look at like organizations of individual entities around greater and like forming greater something that's greater than the sum of its parts, um, yeah. you know, like that's is that a dystopia? It's a dystopia for the rest of those cells, but not for the brain cells. And so is well, a good dystopia one that has some core utopia that then in that, that it's, it's greater pleasure in existence is one that, um, for some small number of those people, like their pleasure is greater than if it were not. So, so this makes me think of this, um, two things. One, and this is not something we have to dive into, but it's just a passing thought that I had, that your fat fucking lazy brain cells that sit up there are prisoners inside your skull, and the only way that they get what they need is if your gut bacteria, who aren't even really you, yeah. insofar as you're an organism, they're just symbiotically living inside of you and helping your brain. Right. Like, your brain's a prisoner. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that kind of goes back to my argument of um why why even in a dictatorship based dystopia the dictator, dictator is is also suffering from the dystopia right. and is worse yes, off absolutely. than in some other utopian situation where everybody is promoted in you know everybody is supported right. in having the best possible individual life that they can. Yeah. And then the other thing I thought of, I totally forgot, but it has nothing to do with brain cells. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to what we were talking about. I'm sure it'll come back to me because it was the second thought that I had, the most oh, recent gotcha. one. And I didn't want to forget the one about the, the being a prisoner right, to your right. gut cells. Um, well, so 
I what I was kind of talking about is um, oh yeah, here I remembered so who is the dysto who is the utopia or dystopia for right yeah like at some point the other thing this reminds me of is this community in Minnesota called Bear Path uh-huh. which is out in the western suburbs and it's a gated community and it's like they're real real specific about it like yeah some places you might be able to get in and out without a lot of fanfare this is like not one of those places you're not getting in unless you quote unquote belong there and from the outside of a place that looks like that yeah i i may be biased because of my position and my perspective but and how i'm you know co-located it relative to that it looks like a prison because it's like are you trying to keep people out or are you trying to like keep people in at this point like it's a different it's it's as opposed to like a maximum security prison that's used as punish a form of punishment in our justice system, which right. punishes people by keeping them in and other people out. Right. This situation is a very closed community that uh-huh. only certain people belong to with the same basic rules. You're either keeping other people in or keeping other people out. And it's supposedly the only difference here is that a prison keeps people in to keep them away from the outsiders. Right. But isn't that what a bear path is too? Like you're keeping yourself in here to be, uh, to limit your exposure to outsiders. Right. Yeah. It's just the reason you're doing it is as a reward instead of a punishment. And I don't see how that logically follows. Like what's the difference there? Why is one a reward and one a punishment? Yeah. And I, I mean, that's kind of, um, that is kind of the issue of, you know, defining or what... Or sh- I should say, how is isolating a group of people inside of a walled-off area to keep them away from other people ever considered anything but a punishment? Right, right. Um, I guess that's what I mean. Yeah, and I think I think that, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of fear-based, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, your oh, concern yeah. is that... But then you're living in a, you're living in fear, and that's that's its own. It's a bunch kind of, of millionaires inside of their private prison. Right. It seems weird. Um, so, but that kind of brings me back to the issue of um, you know we're talking about designing dystopias and or designing a dystopia, and we're talking about what is the superlative superlative dystopia um yeah and obviously isolation has to have a i think isolation is super isolation important is important yep um i think that it's it's hard to just dis- like it's hard to really define it because um or it's hard to define like whichever way we define it the dystopia and utopia are going to be two factors right um the more we talk yeah. about the perfect dystopia, the more we're also also maybe potentially defining what we think of as a utopia. Um, right. It being the opposite of that. But then I don't necessarily, my experience suggests that um, things are not a dichotomy ever. And so right. just because yeah, it's a, a really good, you know, just because the opposite of like, so then living in a society where you're always exposed to everyone else around you, might also be a bit of a nightmare. So, yes. Um, okay. So, total isolation or total lack of isolation. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think I things come back like a lot of this comes back to um, when I think about dystopia, I think about like in frame of reference to the individual, and then I think about um, sure essentially 
limiting personal freedoms. Um, okay. So limiting person, like, you know, where a utopia is one that maximizes personal freedoms for the maximum number of people. Um, that's a way, that's a way that I think, like when I think about this, that's the first thing I think of when I think about what a utopia would be. Okay, um, I'm making a note of that. Utopia. Okay. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's helpful or not. I just know that that's something. I no, think I think it is because, um, because to me, it seems like a dystopia is a lack of personal freedom. Even if you've convinced everyone in the utopia or the dystopia that, or a utopia, because like we said, the, the distinction becomes almost impossible to make when it's a dichotomy. And yes. so in a utopia or in a dystopia, the way that you are successful at creating and continuing that state forward is to convince people that they actually want to participate in it. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, par that's part and parcel for maintaining, um, maintaining your dystopia. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it's, and we have tools for that. I mean, we've talked about it. We have fascism and we have religion and we have sort of, there right. are cultural, there are cu cultural methods to, um, help and reinforce, uh, maintaining a dystopia. Um, yeah. So, Hmm. Yeah. So I, anyway, I, I think, um, this is a good project. I think it is a great project and I'm really excited <laughs> to be talking about it with you. Um, I, I'm really, I, I'm actually, I'm looking forward to some of the other research that we're going to be looking at. Um, yeah. I, so, so yeah, I, I pulled up, um, I, I was going to pull up utopia and or dystopia in the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy and realized very quickly that that was going to be too overwhelming for the depth that we're at right now gotcha yep. um and so just really quickly i <laughs> i went straight to wikipedia and uh so what they said is basically kind of what we've been circling around this whole time so we can pat ourselves on the back for figuring out something we're we're thinking at at least a wikipedia level uh-huh um a dystopia as a community or society is this undesirable or frightening. Okay. So that's like, that's the basic definition. It's a society or community that is undesirable or frightening. Okay. Okay. Sure. So to me, Bear Path, the little like private prison of millionaires out West yeah. is absolutely fits the definition of a dystopia then because it's a society or community that is undesirable or frightening. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Not to the people who are paying lots of money to live in it, maybe, but the fact that people would pay to live like that is, to me, undesirable and frightening. So then the question becomes, um, if you have the right kind of fascism or religion or whatever, so as you stand on the outside, you perceive it as a frightening... Um, perhaps. Perhaps. Yes. Um, I don't think it's a necessary condition. No, but I'm just saying that in this context of what we're talking about, um, yeah. if you have a dystopia, so um, since we're talking about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and the setting is this sort of dystopian world of a sort of abandoned earth 
where yeah. some humans remain and they have these this culture of the mercerism being that they're these they use these empathy boxes to experience um suffering in a shared collective way uh and also there's that other cultural push to to own authentic rear uh, real animals as opposed to right. fake ones but then people own fake ones and all of this being around this cultural push of needing more uh, or having empathy outlets um right so uh it like when I mean, you look <clears throat> when you and i look at that it's like that sounds dumb and miserable right sure but the question becomes um if, for instance, you are a character living in this world, a real human, like in this imagined world, you're a human who um, partakes in mercerism and owns a, mm -hmm. you know, maybe owns a fake animal, but otherwise has some semblance of you in your context, you're content. This, yeah. like, this society looks normal to you and not right. frightening. So then right. is it dystopian for your experience from your frame of reference? I don't know. Um, I mean, it's also like, so know. that, so are we creating, so this is another question for yeah. us. Are we creating a dist, is it possible to create an objective dystopia any more than it's possible to create an objective utopia? Probably not. Probably not. If we're, if we're coming down one way or the other on one, we have to take the opposite or same view of the other. Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, okay. Well, so I, I think that what this leads to, at least for the purposes of this conversation at this moment is that we can, um, we can probably say that one possible aspect of this dystopia is that it must be perceived as dystopia to the participants. Aha! So the people in the dystopia must be aware of the fact that it's dystopic in order for it to be successful. Yes. A successful dystopia. Yes, exactly. Uh, according to our perspective. Yes, exactly. Yep. Okay, so these are the see these are some rules we're writing for ourselves. Okay, so right. I'm going to write this one down too. So the people at, in the dystopia, people in like for instance, um if if there were older. some immortal being that say lived in a different plane of existence or um like, you know, where where their their existence was infinite right like they they don't yeah. face death um right and so they for instance participated like they got a glimpse of of us having this conversation and they mm -hmm. perceived us and they're not and so from their point of view they're looking at all the things like um like we seem pretty happy things are okay like you know i mean we're not yeah. super happy but we're not miserable and everything's great and so they their takeaway is like, oh, that's interesting, until they perceive that we die. And then all of a sudden, our whole existence that you and I perceived as like, ah, that was a pretty good life. And I'm, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, then I died. And that's, you know, inevitable. From their point right. of view, it's a fucking nightmare, right? It's like you would tease some being by this, like, here, you can have some semblance of a life and then you die. Right. And from their out their out world or their sort of outside perspective, it's like that's a fucked up situation. Now, personally, I believe it's a fucked up situation anyway. But um <laughs> same. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you get my point. So, um yeah. Anyway, I forget why I even 
went off of that. So I yeah. think what we were trying to figure out is, does it count as a successful dystopia if the people within it oh. are unaware that it's a dystopia? I think, I, I don't know that we have to make a decision about that right now. I think sure. that a, I left that's it, just... I left it with a question mark. Perfect. <laughs> I just think that's a, um, I think that's a valid factor to consider. I wrote, yeah, it's number 12 on our list of possible criteria for the um, successful implementation of a dystopia. Right. And I wrote, people in dystopia aware, question mark? Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah. So, I, I don't know. I feel like this is a good stopping point on this particular. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah, like we kind of, we, we sort of had a good little discussion of uh, yeah. Philip K. Dick. We're doing great. We are doing great. We are the best dystopia builders ever. The very best. We've certainly put a lot of thought into it so far. Oh, we really have. Um, do you have a tip for living well in hell that we want to round out this particular episode with? Ooh. Um awareness. Be aware of be aware of the of the utopia be, or dystopia that aware. you currently exist in. Yes, I think that's a really good one. Just like look at the factors that are contributing to the big picture of how you live and where you live and decide if those are in line with a utopia or a dystopia and whether you're okay with that. Yeah. I mean, like, I, there's no right answer there, I guess. I just, I think, like, being armed with awareness, like, this is the question of the matrix, right? Like, do you take the blue pill or the red pill? Do you want to be aware of what you're living in or do you want to follow along with the fact that, like, this is the only way it is and therefore this is the right way? Yeah, I and I don't, I, it's kind of funny because, up until a couple years ago, I always firmly believed that um, that knowing is knowing is the important thing, um, and then you know, and then you have to deal with it, like because it, like not knowing about it doesn't make it not true. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so this is really interesting because this what you're talking about is the question of whether there is or is not an objective reality and whether being aware of it makes any difference and like a lot of the things that we're saying contribute to our our, our interpretation of living in a dystopic environment yeah, right now right. are things that align with the values or lack thereof associated with postmodernism and saying that there is no truth you just create your truth as you go and so whatever you say is right at the time yeah i mean <laughs> so i guess we have to decide like if we're gonna try to head off existential crises that people in our dystopia have yeah we're going to have to figure out whether or not our version of reality in this dystopia is dictated with a truth or a total lack of truth so for me a total lack of truth yeah. is a very destabilizing yes. thing even though I don't claim to know what the truth is and I don't think anyone actually has access to it. I think the truth is the whole big picture of everything happening all at once and changing constantly. Right, like in the like your basically argument is the truth is that that um the truth is the thing that we are like it is a, it, it is existence. Like, it's all the stuff. It yeah. is all the stuff. It's all the stuff. Yeah. Um and we won't know it until it's over. Or, you know, I mean... If we ever know it at all. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, yeah, I, like, I, I guess I shouldn't say we won't know it. It won't be known until it's over. Like, So I guess I would take the... Yeah, I guess I would take the stance, like, my personal outlook on this is that yeah. there is truth. There are some things that are true. Right. What they are are probably inaccessible because they are so vast that to 
understand them means you would have to be vaster than they are to encapsulate them. And that's not going to happen. This kind of, so I, I've kind of had this, like, I, I have this model of my, my being as, um, my mind in particular is, uh, my mind is a, basically a virtual environment in which I model the universe. And the uh-huh. reason that I do that is so that I can, my, my biological existence can be more effective. And like we, this bears out, like this is under, like, yeah, this is how brains this, work is that you're modeling I'm totally on board with this so far. Yeah. Like there's, um, you know, the way the, the way the mind works is that it creates a model of the universe and, and so that that's the way you're able to pick up a glass, say, and drink water is because your mind has right. already modeled that. And so as you behave, as you do that, you've already tested to make sure that this is going to work, right? right? And the more accurate your model of the universe is, the better, the more effective you can be, right? But Right, because it feels like the more har- in harmony you are with what's going on around you and yes. therefore you can move more easily and there are fewer roadblocks and things seem to converge right. on the and, right And of- for me, this is why um, I don't, like when people want to like get into a discussion about the existence or lack of God or any of the religious stuff, I'm like, this is, this is useless information because, because no, no, in my 40 years of life, no evidence is borne out for me to be like, to take that on board and have that be part of my model of the universe in a way that benefits me as being able to more accurately represent the nature of reality. Those things could absolutely be true. Tomorrow, you like you know, it's like, yep, when I die and there's true. a God, it's like, yeah, but that didn't, there was no reason for me to hold that in my brain and model yeah. the universe that way because it didn't have any right. impact on my environment around me. So yep. the reason I bring this up is that um, when we're talking about like knowing some ultimate truth or knowing everything, it, it like part of the problem is like you don't have or one one's mind is not, capable of modeling the entire universe all at once right and so yes so because of that like it becomes this recursive problem of at some point your model is so good in your mind that it is a reflection of reality it's not a reflection of reality it is a reality yes oh my god yes I hope somebody else is keeping up with this because you and I have been apparently thinking parallel things without exactly saying them to each other because I've been having the exact same thoughts as you're having right now. No, and this is, this is a problem. I I don't have everything on my notes at hand right now, so I can't really like do this justice, but um, this is a problem that is studied uh, particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence and computing and Uh um, virtual environments. And there's a whole ethical discussion around, um, at what point does uh, and it's it's reached modern culture? Uh, it's it's in modern parlance now. I think there was um, what's that? Uh, there's that the TV show that does like like sort of horror kind of not really horror. It's like sort of science fiction. Um, it's like black Black so, Mirror. Yeah, Black Mirror. Um, yeah, I saw the first episode of that and I was like, nope, I'm out. Yeah. Uh, so but- my understanding, I haven't seen it, but I think one of the episodes they talk about. Um, or is modeled around the idea of this dating agency where um, these modeled humans in this virtual environment are playing out bad dates. And so, and so the, like there's real ethical discussions about the question of like, at what point when you're simulating an intelligence or, um, you know, simulating a mind, at what point does it become unethical to do that? Well, right, because if you have a, the better the simulation is, the closer it is to the real thing. And at some point, if it's indistinguishable from the real thing, then the ethics should hold. 
Yeah. And, and so it's, I, I, anyway, so my point being is like that we were, um, we were kind of discussing the nature of our dystopia and the tools were kind of, you know, what are the, what are the factors that go into a, a dystopia and what are needed in order to, for it to sort of exist and be defined as a dystopia. So, um, whether, whether individuals can know it's a dystopia, um, is maybe not even the right question, but I think it's a good placeholder sure. um, to kind of end on. Um, I okay. don't see any any way like we can continue to kind of discuss those things. So, anyway, yeah. Um, that's my that's my two cents. And uh, this is a, thank you this for listening. Um, thanks for putting up with us, kind of going over on this one. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming on a dystopian journey. <laughs> oh, disappointment. <laughs> Disappointment has to be like a pillar a of core, the dystopia. A core feature. Yeah. In fact, Hilariously, that's number I think when we do our next short, we should discuss disappointment as the, the fundamental factor or one of the fundamental tenets, pillars, the pillars. Um, all right. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening and uh, we're going to sign thank off now. You. So thank you. Okay. Bye. Okay.